Everyone and welcome to Life of Brian for 2023. Ooh, who would have thunk it? Uh, and of course, the star of the show is Brian Mannix. There he is in all his 2023 glory. Here he is. Hello, Brian. I'll tell you what, it feels like 2024 already. Um, I'm exhausted. The year's only just started. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I keep looking at things and seeing 2023 and go, well, hang on, what's going on? I'm, I'm still not used to that, so that'll that'll take a little a little bit from my memory. How was your New Year and uh, and Christmas and all that stuff? Oh, Christmas was good. We had an Elvis-themed Christmas, so um, we became dressed as Elvis in some form or shape, and we had um, Elvis all over the Christmas tree, and I wore my gold Elvis jacket, and my brother had an Elvis wig. He looked more like one of the Planet of the Apes, though. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, so that was good. And then New Year's Eve, I went to Sydney and uh, played in Sydney on New Year's Eve, which was also good. So, but you know, I've done I don't know I've done so many flights already this year, and as I said, I feel tired already. But anyway, that's okay. So at this early stage, are you ha- have you been in more flights than have been cancelled? Have you had more flights cancelled than you've been in? Um, no, no, I've been pretty lucky. I haven't had a a tw- you know, 19-hour delay this year yet. Um, and a good thing is, too, I, I'm a gold member of Virgin now. Oh, um, a gold and Virgin. I'm, and I'm in, I'm, I'm, I go into the Virgin Lounge all the time. And Are you only allowed in there once? No, I go there when, every time I go to the airport early so oh. I can – so I can drink the free beer. So, <laughs> well, yeah, f- free to a point. Um, <laughs> well, 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 it costs about four hundred bucks to be a member, but it's tax deductible. And you know, I've drunk about three hundred and eighty bucks worth of beer already. So by the time the year's finished, I'll have four thousand bucks worth of beer drunk. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's Brian's lofty ambition for the year twenty twenty three. Virgin are going to lose money on me, I tell you all right. <laughs> Richard Branson is currently uh, on the phone to his financial advisors now going, get Mannix off the list. What, what, how can we go through so much beer, he's saying? <laughs> yes, yes. We want to welcome Murcots back because they're, they're part of uh, this ensemble and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to say are again for 2023. So welcome back to Mark and everybody at Murcots. We'll be back on deck now. So uh, you can give them a call on 1300 555 576 and take advantage of the great offers they've got on at the moment. Jump on the website, find out what they're all about. But everybody, everybody uh, needs to be a better driver in 2023. They do indeed because there's more and more cars every single day driving around, more or less road because everybody's parking their car on the street these days. It's, you know, you've got to be a pretty good driver these days to uh, get through, you know, not like the old days when there's hardly any traffic. And even if you are a great driver, and I'm sure that uh, that the, the person listening to this podcast right now is a great driver, there's someone you know who isn't. And you know who I'm talking about. So get, oh, yeah. get a gift certificate for them on 1300 555 that number again, 1300 right. we're part two of our John Hurley interview. So uh, Peterman from Seinfeld will we'll talk about uh, more about Seinfeld, obviously, and about his role. Uh, we'll talk about him actually buying the organisation that Jay Peterman actually owned, the real Jay Peterman owned. He actually bought into it. 
Wow. Which is kind of, you know. <laughs> Part one was a great interview, Kev. Yeah, no. It's really, really good. Enjoyed uh, it. He was great. Really good. He's a lovely fella and a lot more to talk to him about. So part two of that's coming up. And we uh, we debut part one of, of our chat with, oh, God, is this bloke an icon of the of the music industry from, you know, the late part of the 70s all the way through to today uh, where they're still doing gigs. Blondie uh, and their drummer, Clem Burke, is going to join us. He will not have a rest, Clem Burke. He just, if Blondie's not working, he'll go and work with somebody else. He played with everybody. I think he has a minimum of five bands going at any one time. Which, what an effort. It's quite unbelievable. And he'll jump up, and, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, and play with uh, like a Blondie tribute band. He, he does regular gigs <laughs> with Blondie tribute bands. So it's, it's quite – imagine walking into a uh, – I mean, it's like walking into, you know, a Beatles tribute band and Paul McCartney's playing there. You'd be going – or Ringo's playing there. You'd be going, what? Yeah. Yeah, what's going on here? What? <laughs> but, uh, how how rapt would you be if you were the Blondie tribute band? Oh. You'd be out of my good this. Yes. You're, you're beauty. <laughs> yeah. Maybe would we you... get maybe we can get Debbie to come down. Yeah, well, you know, if you don't ask, you don't find out. I think is uh, is how some people view it. So we're going to talk about uh, the success of Blondie, uh, how they broke in Australia, and all that sort of stuff with with Clem too. So terrific chat with Clem Burke, and uh, you'll hear part one of that in this episode. Have uh, you been up to anything exciting? We should uh, we should uh, note. Uh, you know, haven't been arrested or detained or anything that. Uh, Hasn't made the papers, uh, Mr Mannix? Uh, no, I've had no shark attacks, uh, no arrests, no drug busts, um, no busts at all, actually. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, getting a bit lonely. Uh, um, no, oh, here we no, go. The, <laughs> oh, the year started off quite uneventful in some respects, in, in, and that's in a good way. All right. Well, let's get stuck into Clem Burke and then uh, John O'Hurley after that. Uh, so uh, welcome back for 2023 to the life of Brian. Thanks to our very good friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence. one 555 Hello. Hello, Clem. It's Kevin Hillier G'day. and Brian Mannix. How are you going? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, really good. Really good. Thank you so much for having a chat to us. Here we are. You're, you're a very hard man to track down, uh, to be in any one place at any one time. Yeah, I've been quite busy this year. Since the, the lockdown lifted, everything's been uh, full, full steam ahead, you know. It's been a really uh, busy, busy year for me. It's a good thing. Can't help but notice uh, behind you is, uh, is some, some memorabilia, obviously, and some gold records and some, some stuff there in your, in your house. Yeah, in my little office space, yeah. The, the Avedon Ringo portrait and uh, a couple other things. Yeah, different little things. Do you what collect anything? Uh, have you collected anything over the years that was a particular thing you wanted to have? I collect Beatle memorabilia, quite a bit of Beatle memorabilia, movie posters and things like that. Yeah, New York yeah. Dolls stuff. Yeah, this is my just my office room, so I don't I don't really have the gold records up much. Uh, it's a few in the bathrooms, a couple of bathrooms have a few, but. You know, they're not really all over the place. Uh, now, Brian, Brian's a singer, so Brian has a, has a couple of gold and platinum records as well. I don't know whether he has them in his bathroom, though. I'm not quite sure where he's no. deposited yeah. them. What made you decide you to be, be a drummer, Clem? Uh, well, I was left-handed. I was having a hard time uh, picking up the guitar when I was a kid. Right. Drums came to me a lot easier. I sat down at the drums right, on a right-handed setup. Even though I'm left-handed, but I play the drums right-handed. Same as Ringo. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, leave, I tend to lead with my left hand quite a bit. 
I mean, I can yeah. play a few chords on the guitar and a little bit on the piano, but uh, the drums came easy for me. And I was a big Dave Clark fan, big Dave Clark Five fan. Well, he was one of the first drummers, was he not, that actually he was a drummer and the band was named after him, which was quite different to what everyone else was doing. Right. I'm not quite sure if he was playing on those tracks, but he certainly ran the band. I think there might have been a guy called Bobby Graham that played on a lot of the early Dev Flock 5 stuff. Okay. But he was quite the businessman. You know, he bought the uh, rights to all the Ready, Steady, Go uh, films on the TV films. And, uh, yeah, Dave Clark was kind of a role model. Yeah, it was my first kind of pro kit was a white Marine Pearl Rogers kit that looks like it's uh, similar to one Dave Clark has on the cover of the Dave Clark album, Coast to Coast. Yeah, Dave Clark was, uh, yeah, pretty much of a role model, as Ringo as well. Yeah. You know, the Beatles, they were they were four rock and roll stars. You know, each one of them stood out, and that's kind of what I liked. And that kind of carried on with the Who as well, you know. Each person was a star. Yeah. You know, there was... Even though Entwistle was in the background, he still stood out, you know? Yep. Um, your dad was a drummer, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, actually, yeah. Yeah. So More. there was an old uh, kit from the 40s in my grand's uh, loft that I brought down one day after uh, a long time. I, I wish I would have kept them because they were kind of, you know, very old-fashioned, but, you know, like I wanted a drum set like Dave Clark, not like Gene Krupa, but, but, you know, if I would have kept the vintage 40s kit... It would have been great to have. I kept a couple of bits and pieces from my dad's kit, but, you know, he kind of really didn't play anymore. He kind of had a band with his uh, brothers and his dad, uh, kind of like a society band when they were when they were younger. So your band days started like when you were 12, and and does that right you played Carnegie Hall when you were 14? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had my, uh, my high school band. There was a battle of the bands. Uh, there was a DJ called Cousin Bruce Morrow. He's actually on uh, satellite radio in the States now. He's known as Cousin Brucey. And uh, he had Cousin Brucey's big break. And you'd send in a cassette of your band. And then uh, if they liked that, they put you in the studio. So the first time I was in the professional recording studio was uh, WABC, uh, ABC Studios on 57th and 7th Avenue in New York. And uh we recorded a track uh, with my band, and that's what they band. That's what they play on the radio. They, they first step was you got into a pro studio to record. Yeah, and so then uh, you know um, they would have it usually in a kind of a you know a ballroom in a hotel somewhere. But this year for some reason it was at Carnegie Hall. So I played Carne- at Carnegie Hall when I was fourteen years old. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting. Wow. I still remember looking out at the audience. You know, so it was yeah. pretty. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite a, you know, every time I walk past Carnegie Hall, I always think about that, you know, I, quite a, up on 57th Street there quite a bit. Saw some great shows there. The first time I saw Bowie was there, 73, Carnegie Hall, the Ziggy Stardust tour. Really? Now, I've heard you say that the Ziggy Stardust album was like <coughs> a, a turning point album for, for you uh, oh, yeah. as a human being and as a musician, I gather. Yeah, I mean, it was very influential. I mean, uh David's whole uh, persona, Ziggy Stardust, and how he carried on with constantly changing was kind of always a reference point for for us in Blondie because of you never knew what to expect from him. He, you know, he went from soul music to electronic music to, you know, he was like, like a folk singer at first. And then the whole Ziggy Stardust thing was kind of seemed very kind of uh, surreal and, you know, kind of the precursor to punk rock, really. You know, I mean, I think... Uh, 
David Bowie's kind of like reached everyone, you know, in a lot of different ways through the years, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You hung out with him a lot. I mean, you did a bit, there was one big tour you did with him and Iggy Pop, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we did a tour with them, our, our first national tour in the States. We supported uh, Iggy was uh, had come, uh, come uh, out of his... Uh, wherever he was, his dark place and kind of opened up again and, uh, you know, made that album, The Idiot in, in Berlin with David. And then uh, they were uh, promoting that. And uh, we got invited to be the uh, opening act on that tour. So David was playing keyboards on that tour. So that that's where the, we all kind of bonded then. We're actually playing with Iggy uh, July 1st, 2023 at uh, Alexandra Palace in London on Debbie's birthday. It's yeah. going to be pretty cool. And then the other band that's playing with us is uh, they're called Generation Sex, which is uh, it's 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 Billy Idol and uh, Tony James from Generation X and Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Pistols. So we're all going to be in this at this venue together with Iggy and Glenn Matlock plays bass and Blondie now, the original Sex Pistols bass player. So we're all going to be it's going to be quite a day. I'm looking forward to that gig particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, backstage will be crazy. It'll be great. Yeah, it'll be, be going to be good. Yeah, because, you know, I had a band with Steve Jones as well, uh, right when Blondie kind of stopped a band called Checkered Past. Steve Jones was in that, the guitarist in that band. And uh, so, you know, we go back a ways now. Have you, do you have any idea how many bands you've been in over the years? Probably some. I think I'm in about five or six bands right now. Man. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm in a band in, uh, with Vince Mullaney from, uh, the Bee Gees. Yeah, the, the, the tall poppy is, is poppy the syndrome yeah. syndrome, yeah. Which I guess that's a, a particularly Australian phrase. It means like when you kinda like somebody's getting too big for their boots kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We spoke to Vince about oh 12, 18 months ago, Brian, I guess. Yeah. About that. And you're yeah, in cool. a band obviously all play occasionally with uh, with Gary Twin, who's another ex Aussie. Right, which is how I came to uh meeting you online, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I just played with the the Long Shadows last Friday night. Actually, is touring something you still enjoy, or is it a bit of a grind these days? No, I mean these type of things. I would just do it for the fun, fun yeah. of it. I mean, then when we tour with Blondie, it's like being on holiday. You know, right. it's like staying in you know amazing hotels, and 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 it's not a very rigorous uh, touring schedule. You know, it's like. Most we do it would be three shows in a row, mostly two shows in a row with a day off. No, I, I enjoy I enjoy playing. I, I enjoy enjoy traveling, and I, I don't really have to do anything other than show up. No, I, yeah. I enjoy it. But you're very meticulous when you when you play with someone, aren't you? So in that doco, I watched the, the notes that you have uh, for when you do a show. I was quite surprised <coughs> by that. What's I like on those to be notes? Prepared. Just you know. Maybe, uh, you know, kind of like just kind of like what kind of groove I'm playing, what the basic rhythm is of the, uh, you know, what the bass drum's doing. And it's all basically just four fours and it's rock and roll. But, you know, there'll be notes about different. I usually put if a song reminds me of another song, it's an easy way to relate to a song. You know, if I, I got to get to the point where I can hum the song in my head. And a lot of times I can't really do that if I'm doing something very quickly. You got to get to the point where you know the arrangement in your head, you know. I've been told that I have elephant ears by, uh, by my friend, uh, my friend Don Randy, who uh, was part of the, you know, Phil Spector's Wrecking Crew, and he was uh, 
he was, I played with Nancy Sinatra for a couple of years and on and off. And Don was her MD since the sixties. So she has all the charts. She has the drummer, Hal Blaine's charts. And, uh, you know, I can follow and, uh, she has all the charts for all her music, really good group of musicians playing with Nancy when I did that. And Don Randy being the, the, the musical director. So I seem to pick up on things pretty easily, you know? Yeah. I, to, to me, it's about, I have to like the, the music and like the people. It's really basically, you know, if I'm going to go off and do something, I'm, I'm doing this thing in March. That's going to be pretty interesting with the, uh, Going back to Iggy, Tony Sales, who was the bass player, along with his brother Hunt Sales, on uh, the Idiot album and also Lust for Life, and also was the, the rhythm section in Tin Machine with David later on. And yep. uh, we're going to go, someone in London put this thing together. I have a friend who was at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, and he puts on these various musical events. So this one we're doing is... Uh, kind of a tribute to the sort of uh, Berlin era, Iggy Pop, Lust for Life, Idiot music. I'm doing that with Tony in uh, in February. Is that in Japan? But, uh, but it's actually, we, <laughs> it was in going to be in England, but now we just got offered these gigs in Japan, so we're going to do a couple of shows in Japan. And like I said, I just have to turn up. I mean, I just I don't really, people just send me an airplane ticket and take care of me, so I can just do it. Tony and Hunter, Soupy Sales Boys. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not sh- quite sure why I was asked to do it because uh, the obvious thing would be for Tony and Hunt to do this together because they sang back up on, you know, Lust for Life and things. And, and Hunt said, does that amazing, is an amazing drummer. And, you know, he does that, that drum groove on Lust for Life is all about Hunt. But, uh, you know, I toured with Iggy uh, in the early 80s. I did a tour with him. We opened for the Rolling Stones. Uh, you can see that, not the Stones thing, but there's a, a, a video of Iggy in San Francisco. It's from 81. But we opened uh, the Pontiac Silverdome, which is in Michigan, basically Iggy's hometown, near to, outside of Detroit, like 70,000 people indoors. It was uh, wow. Iggy, Santana, and the Rolling Stones. And we played at like 6 o'clock with no sound check. So it's oh. kind of like being thrown to the... Walls. It kind of like felt like you're going in a Roman Coliseum or something when you open the door. Yeah. And we got well, before metal detectors. We got all kinds of shit thrown at us. It's pretty crazy. Wow. Your so, passport must have a lot of stamps on it. I tell you, you seem to be going all over the place. Japan. Yeah. Spain. Yeah. What about recording? Are you doing any recording in the near future? Well, we recorded a new Blondie record in. Uh, we toured uh, April, May in the UK. We, we did like 15 arenas. Right after that, we went into the studio and recorded a new album. And then we went back out on tour. And uh, the album is pretty much done. But I don't think it's going to come out to maybe, maybe, maybe not even till the autumn next year. But uh, it, it's pretty much done. And what else have I done lately? I did a recording with the actress Anne Margaret. Oh, uh, wow. With, uh, with the guy called... Yeah, of course, Viva Las Vegas and all. Yeah. And Mickey, Mickey Gilly, a duet. But Mickey Gilly, I think, was Jerry Lee Lewis's cousin, and he just passed away. And then I just did another thing for a Cramps tribute album. I did a track with uh, Linda Gale Lewis, who is uh, Jerry Lee's uh, sister. Wow. I did a Cramps wow. song. And uh, Glenn Matlock has a new album coming out, and I'm on a few tracks on that. And right before the pandemic, I did an album with the band Echo and the Bunnymen that's yet to be released for some reason or other. 
goodness well, me. Do you know what the word no means, Clem? Oh, I definitely do. But it's easier to, it's easier to say yes because you could always say no later. Yeah. I really find, you know, that the easiest solution to th- something is to just say yes and then if it, that things don't work out, then you can kind of know when to say no, I think. You know, I like to keep going. I mean, being a drummer, you have to really play with, you know, you have to play with other people. Really. Yeah. I don't sit at home and, and I mean, I, I do practice, but I, I enjoy it. Like with the band I have with Gary Twin, The Long Shadows, just a fun band and we do like all sorts of great we just did a tribute to uh to wilco johnson uh, yeah. at the last gig you know wilco was a, was a, a, a big big uh dr field was a really big band for me and uh, i saw them in england a couple of times and then i saw them in new york they played at the place called the bottom line in new york with with the ramones opening so it was quite a night and uh you know wilco johnson just passed away last week yeah yeah, very sad. But, uh, a lot of people are passing away, you know, but that's such is life. Yeah. What 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 do you think the secret is of the success of of the combination of you and Chris and 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 Deborah? Well, the legacy of the band is really is the songs, you know. I mean, obviously Debbie's image was a door opener. And you know, when I when I met Chris and Debbie, uh I knew there was something special there. I mean, it took a while to get it together. Right when I joined, our bass player quit. A guy called Fred Smith quit and joined the band Television. And I brought my high school mate in, uh, a guy called Gary Valentine. I brought in to play bass, and uh, you know we, uh, you know, there was a there was a synergy going on in New York City in the mid seventies. I mean, I, if it wasn't for CBGB, the owner Hilly Crystal, and all the other bands, Patti Smith, the Ramones, you know, Mink Deville, uh, Johnny Thunders, and Harper. You now we were all big New York Dolls fans. But there was, a, you know, all the bands together created something. And, and I don't think uh, if we had been isolated doing it alone, we wouldn't have had the uh, the original kind of success that we had because we kind of were propped up by all the other bands and, you know, took from the other bands and the influences were like intermingling. And I mean, you could, it's really analogous to the kind of to the cavern in a lot of ways, you know, what happened in, in uh, Liverpool in the 60s. CBGBs was definitely like our cavern. Yep. You know, the launching pad. And I, I always say the same thing about it. it was a workshop. You know, you made your mistakes in public. You didn't have to be perfect. You know, you just kind of had to uh, just get the gigs. And the owner, Hilly Crystal, is all about people doing original music. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, right place, right time. But it, it, was, it was a cooperative energy coming out of uh, the Lower East Side at that time of the Bowery. When you answered that ad, that was in the, I think, the Village Voice, is that the name of the, the yeah, newspaper? Voice, yeah, which yeah. asked for a freak energy musician. Uh, yeah, w- yeah. When you walked into that meeting with them, what what happened? Were, were, I mean, were there sparks? Were there was a, a original kind of like zing between you guys or did that take some time as well? No, I think there probably was. I mean, I, I think I probably impressed them and uh, I was obviously Debbie's charisma was very obvious to me. I already knew who they were. We crossed paths. We both had bands that played at a place called Club 82, which yeah. was a, kind of a, a, a club which um, was kind of like a glam rock, like the New York Dolls would play there. And when Wayne County would play there and the bands like called Teenage Lost and uh, the Harlots of 42nd Street. And it was kind of like a glam rock uh, hangout. Like, and you would see like Lou Reed or Bowie would be there, but it would, they only had rock and roll one, one night a week. And my band that I had at the time uh, called Sweet Revenge, we'd play there, and, and Debbie and Chris had a band 
stilettos and they would play there. We didn't really, we just talked when we met up, you know, just talked and kind of one thing led to another and we just started playing. Yeah. When and how did you get a record deal? Well, there was uh, going to be a, a live at CBGB record that someone was Richard Goddard, who was our original producer, was putting together. And by the time that was going to happen, uh, a lot of the bands that they wanted to have on the record had already had kind of had record deals like the Ramones and uh, Think Talking Heads. And so basically we uh, signed a production deal with a guy, Richard Goddard, who was in a band called The Strange Loves, who had the songs I Want Candy and Nighttime. And yeah. he was also a songwriter, came out of the Brill Building uh, along with like people like Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Phil Spector and all that. So that was that was uh, Richard Goddard's background. He had written a hit song called "My Boyfriend's Back," and yeah. uh, produced uh, "I Want Slo- I, uh, Hang On Sloopy" by the McCoys and things oh, like wow, that. Yeah. So we signed a, a production deal with Richard for to do a single, and that's kind of how it started. He placed the single with an independent record company called The Private Stock. The single, you know, just to hear it on the jukebox at CBGBs was like like a, a version of success. Yeah. And somebody actually put some their twenty five cents in and played the track. You know. Obviously, there was a bunch of different things happening within the band, the style of the band, that the type of music we were playing. We were very pop-oriented, pop music-oriented, like influenced by the music of the 60s, like hit records from the 60s, whether it be the Ronettes or the Shangri-Las or the Four Seasons or British Invasion bands and things like that. So we were a little different from some of the other bands on the scene at CBGB. Australia was fairly important in the in the kind of breaking of the band too. Uh, 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 memory is that? that Australia was pretty important in the band being broken. I think in the flesh was oh, yeah. a hit in this country before it was a hit anywhere else in the world. Right. Yeah, we had our first hit there. I think it went to number two. I think we like to say it went to number one, but I think it was <laughs> it went to number two. That's it's a story that's been retold many times. But you know, our our friend Ian uh, Molly Molly Meldrum. He got a hold of the video. I guess in, in Australia, the the the, the forty five was uh, ex offender. Well, I think they there was. I guess we we made three videos. We made a video for a song ex offender, which was the single, and the B side was a song called In the Sun, and then an album track was In the Flesh, which was the song that became the hit in Australia. And so, legend has it when. Uh, when Molly on, on countdown uh, was introducing the band, he said, okay, so a new band. He might've said, here's a new girl from New York, a band, who knows what he said, announced X, the song X offender. And the video came on. It was the video for in the flesh. And uh, you know, in the flesh is kind of like a fifties ballad, you know, it's kind of six, eight sort of uh doo wop song kind of, you know, like very fifties sounding. You could hear people singing it a cappella on a street corner, you know, like that, something like that. And so uh, that was the song that became the hit. And then I think when we got to Australia, people didn't really know what to expect from us because they kind of thought we were this maybe is kind of, you know, that was typical of our music, that one song, which it, which wasn't, you know, we were in the throes of punk rock at the time. So things got a little wild when we got to Australia, you know, <laughs> un- unexpectedly.
is the song that accidentally, as you heard, became uh, Blondie's first big hit in Australia, and and that was that was the catalyst from in massive. So uh, we'll talk to uh, Clem in the next episode. Uh, we'll continue that conversation and talk more about uh, the success of Blondie and what he's up to these days, and uh, what chance we might have of seeing Blondie here in Australia in the near future. Well, that'd be good. I tell you what, in the flesh, that's probably one of my favourite Blondie songs. Oh, it's great. Is it? It's a, like it's it. such a simple song, but it's 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 mesmerising. It is. It's uh, um, so 60s sort of, but it's just, I don't know, it's really cool. I love it. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a haunting quality about it that it, now now that you've heard it uh, in the last five minutes, it will stay in your head now and you'll hear it now for the next 24 hours. Yeah, it's a bit of an earworm. Uh, now uh, we're going to go now to our the second part of the uh, the interview I did with John O'Hurley, the man who played Peterman in Seinfeld. Terrific fella. We we spoke about uh, getting the Seinfeld role and how that all started for him. And now we're going to delve a little more into it and talk about some of the other things that uh, that he's done and some of the other things he's interested in. So sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, part two of John O'Hurley, Peterman from Seinfeld. I'll give you an example. There was a um, a wonderful show when Rob Schneider, oh, the comedian, yes. was playing my was playing my hard of hearing assistant, and I mistakenly thought that he and Elaine were having a little office romance, and so I decided I was going to play Cupid, and I walked into her office late one afternoon and I slapped down two tickets to the Karamazov Brothers Circus and I tell her that she and Bob can knock off a little early to get ready. And she looks at me as though I had grown a second head. And she said, Bob? And I said, Elaine, don't worry. I, too, am no stranger to love on the clock. As a young lad, my father apprenticed me to a honey factory in Belize. The chief beekeeper was this horrible hag of a woman with gnarled teeth and a giant wart that she called a nose. Oh, she was not attractive, even by backward standards. But love is truly blind, Elaine, and as the days went on, working closer and closer together, that sweet smell of honey in the air, I knew I had to have that horrible creature. And I did. So you and Bob have a good time tonight. (laughs) I mean, that's... That's the brilliance of the writing on that show. And, uh, you know, as you say, how do you remember that? How do you remember that all these years? I go, how could you forget it? It was just, um, you know, just brilliant writing. And and they had so much fun, you know, with with that stuff. As I say, sadly, a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor. But uh, every week there was a Peterman monologue. But because we were too long, that was the easiest thing to quickly cut. They have put some of those back into the kind of uh, the uh, collection versions of, of some well, of the some shows, of them. They? But uh, you know, it's funny. I still um, um, we have we have this platform that I'm. It's it's an internet platform, so you have it as well. It's uh, called Cameo.com. Yeah, uh, that we do. It's a billion dollar company now. I've been very successful. Where celebrities will get on and and give happy birthdays and happy retirements and I'm so sorry that you died type of things, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, bereavements or whatever. But or, or um, you know, it, wonderful, you know, little salutations and stuff. And uh, and and we're paid for it. But you know, and it's fun. 
Well, I started doing these during our world global pandemic, and this became my new sitcom where I was delivering these. And I would write these, these uh, Peterman monologues that were used for all different occasions that you can imagine. Oh, wow. And um, and, and they became so popular that uh, I guess I was, uh, and, and probably still am to the day, you know, one of the top three or four people on Cameo because people go to Cameo just for the Peterman monologues. They want that and give that as a gift to somebody. So it's become a very, very, um, you know, unique uh, way of keeping Peterman alive, I guess, but it's, uh, but I enjoy it and, and I enjoy writing the monologues. You know, I have a, I, you know, I have my own take on the character and, uh, you know, he's a, he's still the raving lunatic that he always was. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, how, how good the scripts were and how important the scripts were, but uh, I mean, how many times did you go off script? I, I, I read a quote about you talking about one of the first scenes that you did was with, I think, George and, and, uh, and Jerry and you, waiting for Elaine to join you at a restaurant and you actually ad-libbed a line that wasn't in the script? Were you allowed to go well, off you know, Peter I, much? I, you know, I did, yeah. I I, I still felt the freedom uh, as an actor because I just, you know, I mean, bizarre things just happened to me in my head. It's, it's part of being a, an actor, I guess, and, you know, a creative person. Um, and so we're standing there. Jerry had weaseled his way out, as George said, on an excuse built for one. Um, <laughs> Elaine took off earlier than that. So it was just George and I. And I said, don't worry about it, George. Tonight, it will just be the bulls. <laughs> and so that stayed um, because everybody found it very funny. So it, uh, you know, it was the kind of show that was a true genuine creative rehearsal process. If you found something to say, throw it in a rehearsal. And if it worked, maybe it was there in the script the next day because it, um, you know, they were there to make something funny. They weren't there to, to be pompous and arrogant and say, no, only we can be funny. No, they were, you know, it was a very giving and sharing group of people. It really was. Yeah. And I will also say the smartest group of actors I've ever worked with, they could have gotten up from that table read and gone over and taped the show. They didn't need a rehearsal. They were that smart. Okay. I, I was surprised, actually, that uh, Peter Benoni was in 20 episodes. It felt like more. Well, it was more. Um, I think a couple were taken out, uh, I think, because they had kind of, you know, we've gotten so darn p- politically correct, I think, um, in our national temperament or ill temperament, that um, a couple of them didn't pass uh, approved flesh. Let's put it that way. And and sadly, I was in them. (laughs) And I think I was probably the one that made them (laughs) controversial because I had a habit of of saying things like Shanghai Sally, yam, yam. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, you did. (laughs) I could offend offend anybody. (laughs) Was there ever any talk of a a Peterman spinoff, as we see so often happen? You know... There were, um, yes, but you know, the funny thing about Peterman was, and, and, and it's, you have to really understand, I think the, the, the anchor of sitcoms really is normal. Jerry was normal. And because of that, all of the absurdity could happen around him. So when you have somebody like Peterman or Jackie Childs or, um, Putty or, or, yeah, or or the soup Nazi, (laughs) you know, they're all funny characters, but 
they don't work in the world of sitcoms because you can't create a normal world around them. So somebody has to be the anchor. They're the tangent, and I'm the tangent, and Peterman was the tangent. So, you know, it would always be another tangent. Uh, so, it, it, and I and I think that's pretty accurate. It's as I've come to understand it through the years. Um, but it is a funny character, as I say. I still love doing him on Cameo.com because I know that, you know, for three or four minutes, I uh, I'll live another monologue, and it's and I know that it's going to a good home. <laughs> Some people, some actors, uh, get upset and uh, and become bitter about the, when the character becomes as big as Peterman did for you and becomes so encompassing of you as a human being as well. For the most, for most people, did did that did that happen to you? Did you have you ever fallen out of love with Peterman? Oh, never, never, never. I actually, I, I'm I'm not sure if the word ever made it to you, but um, the year after Seinfeld ended, the real Jay Peterman and the Peterman company went bankrupt. They went into what we call Chapter 11. And um, he called me one day while I was in New York about a year later and uh, said, I've got the company back. Um, If you're interested in coming on board, um, we can bring the company back from our parallel strengths. So I wrote him a large check and I owned the Jay Peterman company with him. And so for many years, uh, up to recently, I've, I've kind of backed my way out of it, but have owned the J. Peterman Company for more than 20 years. Uh, or it's been, you know, a, a very interesting uh, situation of I liked the role so much I bought the company. <laughs> the, the greatest identity thief of all time. Do, I mean, is a catalog online company, is it a thriving company or not? Now it is, yeah. No, it's done very well. Well, that, yeah, and this is what they always were, and that was always their strength. Uh, I think the problem was back in the late nineties, uh, they had grown from fifteen million dollar a year, fifteen millions a year in sales when I started doing Seinfeld and the parody back in ninety four, ninety five, and uh, I think by the time they ended in ninety eight, they were about one hundred and twenty five million. So they had this, you know, this meteoric rise. Um, and I think they got a little ahead of themselves. They started building stores and uh, what have you, and that's a whole other entity. You know, to, you know, it's 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 a different world. They were a catalog company, and and probably should have stayed that way. You've got uh, very very varied interests outside of your showbiz world, uh, including mm-hmm. obviously being involved in the in the Peterman Corporation. But um, I know you're involved in a, a, a company. I think it's called Gold Seal. Energies, which is mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, another. I'm, I'm lucky enough. I, you know, as I say, the imagination uh, leads me, and I follow. Um, I love I love companies with culture changing ideas, yeah. and so I have a couple of them. One of them is uh, and it's going to be culture changing. Is it's a waste to energy company that takes any form of waste and turns it into large amounts of energy, but it does it with absolute zero emissions. So basically, what does that mean? We zero out the need for landfills, for sewage treatment plants. Um, We can handle all of the coal in the world with absolute zero emissions. Um, We can take care of all of the used tires. There are 360 million used tires in the U.S. alone every year. Who knows how many and and probably one for every person in Australia as well. 
and no one knows what to do with them. They stick them in landfills. They've tried to recycle them, but they, have, they are inherently carcinogenic, so you can't. Um, uh, so, uh, and in addition to that, we handle all of the farm and hog manure and all the everything you can think of in, in, in the world of agriculture, timber as well. So anything with a BTU value, anything that could possibly burn, we basically take care of and turn into large amounts of energy. Uh, but again, with zero, absolute zero emissions. So it's, uh, you know, and uh, to put it in a more specific uh, and, you know, kind of pop culture uh, perspective, I can take care of all of these plastic swirls in the ocean very simply. And we can do that and we will do that. Uh, So as I say, it's a culture changing idea and um, I've had it for quite a while and it keeps evolving and evolving and evolving. And um, it's, um, it's going to be quite something. Wow. What haven't you done that you want to do? Um, well, I, I think I, I want to have these uh, two technologies. The other technology that I have is is just as culture changing, and I think it it, it has such an effect, a, a, an equal effect on our world, and that is um, creating the proven identity on the internet. Um, I think this is a huge issue for us. Um, and it because as we as we rely more and more upon the internet to solve the expediencies of our life, our financial transactions, our social transactions, even the communication that you and I are having right now, we rely on the fact that people are who they say they are. Yeah. And you know, uh, we've had so much cyber fraud in the world, and it's even getting worse. And this is where I think it's going, and I think this is what is sounding the alarm in me, is that we're getting into the what they call the deep fake, which is, um, you know, you're looking at me right now, and we're doing an interview, but it's not me. I, it sounds like me. It has a software-created image of me, but it's not me. So I could say things that would be inherently damaging to me or to you, or if I was the CEO of a company or a political figure, God forbid, the president of the United States, but the deep fake was in, I could create so much damage in such a short amount of time that it would be irretrievable. Think about it. I mean, I could say something if I was the CEO of a company that could bankrupt my stock in moments. Mm. And it it would take 24 hours to finally find, you know, the, 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 the damage that was caused. So this is where we really need to certify our identity. And I have a company and a technology called Q5ID. Q5ID is the tightest, most secure uh, form of identification of the world. You can't hack it because you can't find it. And it's your ID that is proven. And it has a, its failure rate is one in 933 billion. It's a hundred times the population of the world. I mean, it is the most secure thing. And if you go to the Q5 ID app, you'll see what it is. It takes about three minutes to register. And that's the last time you will ever 
have to do it. It will it will event it replace usernames and passwords. It will be the way that you bank. It will be the the source of moving money around the world. But you can't hack it because you can't find it and it never leaves your control. And that's what makes it unique. Yeah. Um, hacking is happens because we've left our identities and all of our information in the hands of these other, you know, cyber companies, our, our banks and everything else. They sit over there. Well, they hack them and they get all the information. Mm. Well, with Q5 ID, you could hack it and you could pick all that information apart, but you couldn't do anything with it because it's not you. You create the you on the Internet and okay. it belongs only to you forever. Cradle to grave. Yeah. So, I, as I say, I have. I what I do is I find companies that have what I believe are, are culture changing ideas, and I, and I, you know, put my heart into those. So, when you say what haven't I done, I haven't brought these to anywhere near to the level that I want them to exist in. I've done a lot in terms of entertainment, and if I continue to do my one man show, I'm the happiest man in the world. Yeah, uh, and I love doing it, and uh, people laugh, and they're small crowds. I, you know, it's funny. I'll deal with um, a, a thousand people a night rather than thirty seven million, um, and I get just as big a thrill out of that. But um, as I say, I when I leave this earth, I'd like to have a few of these technologies. Uh, be commonplace. I will. I will be able to close my eyes and say, "Well done." Yeah. Hey, uh, it's been sensational having a chat with you. I, 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 have you ever been to Australia? Clearly, you haven't. No, I have. Thank you for asking, and thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, back in the early '90s, I shot a really fun movie of the week. Half of it I shot in the U.S. Half of it I, I shot down in Sydney. All right. First time in the first time I was in Australia, and um, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful experience that I fell in love with all Australians because it uh, the most wonderfully ingratiating culture I have ever met. And I'm saying that being 100% Irish, um, <laughs> I, I met more wonderful people down there in Australia. And I began to just recognize that the culture was just very accessible. You don't have a lot of baloney down there. People are just willing to talk to you. You could go, you know, to a, you know, a pub there at Circular Quay in, in, in Sydney and in 20 minutes know everybody at the bar. And I just found that fascinating because, you know, you know, in New York, it would, you know, it's different. And it's, you know, just in the U.S. it's different. We're much more guarded with our, with our, you know, our, well, we our weather is perfect, and the people think they are. You know, <laughs> that's the way it goes. But but yeah, but I, but I fell in love with Australia. I fell, and then um, I've had some wonderful um, uh, revisits uh, as spokesman. I was spokesman for McDonald's um, for a while yep. back down there in uh, in all of uh, in the country there, and. Uh, what I loved about it is it gave me an opportunity to say some things that you just can't say in the United States. And they, you know, they loved the Peterman character, so they wanted everything done as Peterman. So it was, it was a whole series of things. And all I remember was something that just made me laugh. I said, you can't say this. And they said, go ahead, say it. And I said, you'll feel like more of a man with a quarter pounder in your hands. <laughs> Of course you do. You can't, you can't say that in the United States. 
<laughs> I'm not sure you can say it here anymore, yeah. but anyway, you you did. Uh, uh, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully. Yeah, I, I'm sure the phone calls are going into McDonald's right now saying, get O'Hurley off the air right now. <laughs> You've done a lot of voiceover work, and I, which is not surprising. You have a, a beautiful voice. Is it a voice that comes from the stage as much as anything else? Well, it comes from opera. I, yeah. I learned uh, at, a, at a young age really how to uh, how to place my voice. Yeah. And, um, you know, mine was the last one to change in high school. Uh, so it was <laughs> that was the irony of it all. Oh, wow. But it was a yeah, it was a fun. Yeah, I had a little squeaky voice like this. And then all of a sudden it went down there like that. And I happened to be doing a children's musical at the time. So the 10 year old that I was playing uh, became uh, something of a. A misnomer, and um, <laughs> yeah, and but it, you know, but also my voice changed at a time in the late sixties when I was a young kid. But the the British invasion of music, the Beatles and what have you, had come across the swamp to the, to the U.S. and all of the music went into the hands of the DJs. The, the the DJs that they controlled music in the U.S. during the rock and roll period of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and what have you, and they had these voices that were everything was up here and it was musical like this and you could have every album ever recorded, <laughs> you know, and it was this this crazy musicality that went along with these voices that I just loved. I said, but that's like the greatest voice in the world. So I I think when my voice changed, you look for around for mentors and you say, what do I want my voice to sound like? Well, you know, it was like a DJ. So um and so it was always about, you know, how deep and dark could you make your voice? And so I guess, you know, as I studied music and singing, I always kind of assimilated the, the notion of how you play with your voice as a musical instrument. And so it, Peterman was a great example of the fact yes. that if they gave me, if they gave me a, a, you know, a line to say, I'd work for an hour on how to configure that line into more of a musicality that would be everything that I said to Elaine had, it was always kind of like a piece that you wanted to just listen to. Elaine, do you have any idea what happens to a butter bass frosting after six decades in a poorly ventilated British basement? I have a feeling what you are about to go through will be punishment enough. <laughs> but it's like all, Every, if I go back and every single one of those notes that I just hit was predetermined. I'd already figured out, you know, um, where I hit the highs and where I hit the lows and stuff. So it was, it was just a, a one, I mean, you know, they gave me the gift of the words. I just had fun with them. So it was kind of, you know, it was uh, kind of an, an unusual timing and unusual experience and, uh, it was when that show ended. It was the day the music died. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you do you find yourself uh, like at home? Do you do Peterman and then and, and the house goes? No, hang on. You can't be doing that here. Ah, yeah. uh, no. They no. They love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's no. It's always fun. We we always you know I'll I'll always have a, a Peterman or something to say. My son has picked up on a lot. You know, it's it's so interesting because in the states, our brand Netflix there has picked up uh, Seinfeld now as a download. So mm -hmm. you can download episodes of Seinfeld, which so 
now young people are watching Seinfeld in a way that they never watched it when it was syndicated. It just because syndicated television wasn't something kids watch. It wasn't cool. But this now, this download thing, they can binge watch it. So yeah. they'll watch five or ten Seinfelds in a row. And so we have a whole new audience that watches it. And I have a, a son who's just turning 16 in a week or two. And um, he and his friends all watch Seinfeld now. That's what they watch when they're having dinner. And, and it's, uh, I find that fascinating. All of a sudden, that it's found a brand new audience again. And so it should because it is one of the great quality shows of all time that uh, always, if I feel the slightest bit down or the slightest bit lost in any way, put an episode of Seinfeld on and you'll feel better at the end of it. But yeah, so, yeah it's a little like home cooking, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it is. It's just like you go, oh, there's mom's cooking. Yeah. <laughs> hey, John, thank you so much for spending so much time with me. I really appreciate it. It's been My uh, pleasure. What, absolute what an delight. Absolute- what an absolutely enjoyable time. I would love to come down and do my one-man show down there. So I'm going to put it on your shoulders to find a really good <laughs> jazz club in Melbourne to have me come down. Uh, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much, sir, for your time. It's been, it's been a real privilege and pleasure. Great to talk to you, my friend. Good on you. Thanks, John. You bet. A lot of fun. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Okay, cheers. All right, there he is, John O'Hurley. Let's hope one day we can get him uh, out here to, to bring his musical show to Australia, that would be that would be a treat. What a lovely man. What a terrific uh, oh. terrific interview. Love that. What a magnificent magnificent voice. Oh yes. Gee whiz. Ah oh, yes. Uh, and he does do those you know the the cameo uh, messages that you do uh, for oh, yeah. people's birthdays and anniversaries and uh, significant events in their life. He does some of those as Peterman, which he writes himself. Oh, wow. So uh, if you ever wanted to uh, delve down there, uh, check that out because uh, I'm sure that would be something that if, if you're a, a Peterman fan and a, a Seinfeld fan and uh, and you're like John O'Hurley, and who who wouldn't, uh, that would be worth checking yeah. into. Now, I, reckon be, I reckon I might do that. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, coming up on yeah. the next edition, uh, we'll play you the next bit of uh, the – Clem Burke interview from uh, from Blondie. And also we've got uh, right. part one of a chat that you and I did. Talk about one of the icons of uh, television sitcoms uh, in the 70s and into the 80s. Wasn't many bigger shows than Happy Days. I don't think there was any show bigger than Happy Days. And there uh, wasn't many, many uh, people bigger than, you know, the, the, the crew that made up that uh, ensemble were, were household names and Donnie Most is certainly that as Ralph Melf. Yes, and who knew he could sing? And he can sing very he well. He can sing. He's very good, but yeah. I didn't know. I just knew him as Ralph Melf. Very, very well. You yeah. know, appearances in the love boat and stuff like that. Well, in fact, we'll finish the show today by playing. He does a version, uh, we're going to talk to him about it in the interview, or we did talk to him about it in the interview. He does a version of the Sanford Townsend band song, Smoke from a Distant Fire. So I'll finish the show with that. So you got a little teaser as to Donnie's musical prowess. And then, of course, we'll talk to him about uh, that and about uh, Ralph Melf and about Ron Howard and about uh, Henry Winkler and all the, uh, you know, the Fonz and everybody in, in, uh, in the next episode of the show. All right, I look forward to that. Murcott's Driving Excellence, they're the people you should be talking to about, uh, you know, fixing yourself up and and the people around you to, to become better drivers. Defensive driving courses, advanced driving courses, uh, you know, if someone's uh, turning 18 and you, you want to get them set up for a licence, well, Murcott's are the people to talk to, so give them a call. They are good. They taught me how to be a Grand Prix driver. 
And look, you're still alive. I reckon that's living I'm testament. Alive. I'm still alive. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that just goes to show how good they are. <laughs> they are fair miracle workers. one three hundred five 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 seven six. that's the number, mercots.edu.au. That is, uh, that's how you can get in contact with them. We will uh, move the pieces around on the Ouija board and contact you for the next episode uh, very soon, Brian, so you take care. All right. I'll look forward to that, Kev, and uh, you have a lovely day and a lovely week. And happy flying and drinking in the Virgin Lounge. All right. (laughs) Time to get my money's worth. I just don't care 